Hello, Fear the Fro listeners. Bob Schmidt, your host here on yet another episode. And before we get into the events of the evening, I wanted to touch on the things that we have missed since the last time we spoke. Now, I posted a couple podcasts over the weekend talking about the Clippers, talking about some trade rumors with Josh Hart. Check those out if you haven't. But there was one specific story over the weekend that got buried, one that's near and dear to the Cavalier faithful, that being Turkish Jordan exploding for 29 points in an absolute evisceration of the Los Angeles Clippers. At one point, leading the game by 40 points. Yes, no Kawhi, no Paul George, but don't rain on my parade. I had enough of that over the course of the weekend because while everyone should have been celebrating the glorious Jetty Osman, the conversation centered around two things. NFL referees and NBA referees and our very own former generational talent franchise superstar LeBron James dominated that conversation. Now, many of you probably saw it Saturday evening, Los Angeles Lakers, Boston Celtics. The game comes down to the final seconds. The score is tied heading to the end of regulation. LeBron James drives to the rim and as he goes up for the layup... Slapped across the forearm by Jason Tatum. But what followed was not a whistle. No tweet. Nope. None of that. The ref swallowed the whistle. They spat in the face of yet another game winner from the king. He allowed that foul to stand. LeBron James visibly shaken, reacting, holding his arms above his head, collapsing to the floor. Woe is me. And in the aftermath of what was an egregious no-call from the referees, the reaction was, generally speaking, one of three things. You have Camp A, the I Hate LeBron James camp, who put all the attention upon his reaction, his over-the-top reaction to, look at this guy. You had Chandler Parsons, $95 million sack of doorknobs, former NBA player. Some of you probably don't even remember him, those of you on the younger side, but signed a gigantic deal with the Memphis Grizzlies, which they instantly regretted because he spent the rest of the time injured. Some might say that it was beyond his control, but others questioned his heart. And I think based on this tweet where he said the mailman could run over his dog in the street and he wouldn't be as upset or demonstrative as LeBron James is. I think that speaks to a cold, calloused, scabbed-over heart. Now, some may say it's not an issue of heart for Chandler. Maybe it's just the fact that he lacks all integrity. I mean, this is a man who said that he rushed to sign the Memphis contract offer before he took a physical which would have revealed that he was not only a bag of doorknobs, but a creaky, rusty, flawed one at that. He had no problem taking somebody's money, knowing full well he'd never live up to the expectations that came with that. So it would be no shock if watching a referee put a dirty stain upon the integrity of the game. It didn't impact him in the slightest. In the end, though, I'm throwing him in with the haters. Fuck that guy. There was the second camp. The camp who said, well, of course LeBron has a case. It's a justified reason to be upset. Three refs right there watched what was a very obvious foul. And I at least pitched a tent in that camp initially. I might have moved it after the first night. But in the beginning, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that LeBron James missed the rim on a layup. What more would you have to see? For a player of his ilk, perhaps the best player of all time, regularly has found himself on the wrong side of some very important whistles. No one in Cavalier fandom will ever forget the NBA Finals block charge reverse fiasco. Since he went to the Los Angeles Lakers, LeBron's trips to the free throw line have been minimal at best. 
2019, 5.7. 2020, 5.7. 2021, 6. This season, 6.2 free throw attempts a game. Now, some of that is attributable to settling for a lot more three-pointers, but this is still a man who shot far over 400 shots from the rim this season. It's not a small sample. For a guy who, what was the criticism? He just overpowers people to the rim. I've heard that his whole career. Well, if that's the case, don't you think a man who lives at the rim would live at the line more than Benedict Matherin, a rookie in Indiana? Wouldn't you think so? Not this year. 18th in the NBA in free throw attempts a game. Already, a rookie is getting a more favorable whistle than him. And I think all of us who watched the Oklahoma City Thunder take on the Cavs last weekend might have realized that Shea Gilgis-Alexander is very effective at drawing whistles. Double-digit free throw attempts. And he does a lot of creating separation with his off-arm. But it's being rewarded. For LeBron James, only three seasons over the course of his career where he's exceeded 10 free throws a game. Now he's just too big, some say. You can't give him every whistle because he initiates the contact. Well, what about Giannis? He's had a season where he averaged 13 free throws in a game. Joel Embiid, another physical superstar who's bigger than everyone, who should fall under that same criteria of, well, you can't give LeBron all the whistles. He initiates the contact. Okay, fine. But then tell me why Embiid, in just seven seasons, has had more than 10 free throws four times, already eclipsing LeBron's standard. Let's stay in the moment. I can still be upset that he didn't get a whistle for what was a plainly visible, clear-as-day foul on Jason Tatum, but I'll only live in that place for a finite period of time. It should be highlighted, and then we have to move forward. And that's how I came to live in this third camp, which developed on Sunday, which consists of people who can both recognize that LeBron is the victim, but also feel victimized by the NBA's response to it. And I also fall into that camp, because just last week, we saw Donovan Mitchell fall on the side of two incorrect calls within the final 50 seconds of the game against the New York Knicks. First, Donovan Mitchell streaking down the court in transition. R.J. Barrett rakes him across the arms. The ball goes out of bounds. They call it off Donovan Mitchell. They don't call a foul. Then we get to the final possession, down 105-103, less than 15 seconds left. Mitchell for a shot to tie it and send it to overtime. Donovan Mitchell drove to the basket looking for a game-tying shot against Isaiah Hartenstein, created contact, bodies collided, Hartenstein's arms dipped, no whistle. Now, in the aftermath, the two-minute report from the league, what did they say? Hartenstein initially jumps vertical but brings his arm down and makes contact to Mitchell's arm and affects his driving shot attempt. Incorrect call. That's right. They said it was an incorrect call. Now, did the league then pour its heart out to the fans, apologizing and saying how sorry it was? No, they didn't say anything. (laughs) Oh, the cat! They want an explanation. You don't matter. No one's watching. Lose our number. Fuck your fucking team. Fuck off. Fuck your team. That's what they said. And they've said that time and time again. We boned the Bulls two games in a row. Did the Bulls get an apology? No. The Kings, they've been hosed time and time again this season. Did they get an apology? No. But when this interpretation came from the NBA... Tatum initiates contact with James' arm, affecting his shot attempt at the rim. Incorrect call. What was the reaction from the NBA for this? Was it silent indifference like the rest of us got? 
It's just one call amongst many, after all. A long season. No, it was not. Because God forbid that the precious Los Angeles Lakers find themselves on the wrong side of a whistle. What followed was a disgusting display of bootlicking by the NBA. In less than 24 hours, in fact, in the immediate aftermath of the game, we saw this statement go forth from the NBA referee's Twitter page. Like everyone else, referees make mistakes. We made one at the end of last night's game, and that is gut-wrenching for us. This play will weigh heavily and cause sleepless nights as we strive to be the best referees we can be. Pretty fucking dramatic, okay? You missed a call. I've seen less emotion from politicians talking about school shootings than that. Chandler Parsons can't even process that level of emotions. He was probably trying to read those words and struggling. So he just shoved a bunch of dollar bills into a pillowcase and laid down and took a nap, called it a day. He's in retirement after all. Gut-wrenching and sleepless nights should never be used when you're apologizing for fucking over the Lakers. You're doing the Lord's work. Gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching. That's Jared Allen in Salt Lake City just tossing his cookies into the toilet. That's gut-wrenching. As I said, LeBron deserved the whistle. I was upset in the moment as a complete LeBron stan. However, how about the NBA shows some consistency in their nonchalant fuck you reaction to it? If the rest of us have to just suck it up and deal with it, then so do the Lakers. Now, don't get confused here. I am on a tightrope. I am supporting LeBron, hating the Lakers, hating the NBA's response to not supporting LeBron, and supporting the rest of the league because we are not treated like the Lakers and LeBron. It is a tricky thing to understand. I get that. But don't ever be confused as to where my loyalty lies with LeBron James. Because if there is one thing, I promise you, Fear the Fro listeners, it's that when people come for the king, the Fear the Fro podcast will mount up. LeBron stands. We regulate any and all hate on the king, and we're damn good at it, too. But you can't just be some nerd on the bird on Twitter talking words. You gotta take the king love to the streets. So LeBron stands everywhere. Mount up. It was a really close game. LeBron had the ball. Tatum hit his arm. Didn't get the call. Got me so upset. No respect for the king. Does the greatest score ever not mean a damn thing? Sitting on my keyboard in the 330. On a mission trying to let Bron haters know. Yeah, sure he was upset, but who wouldn't be? I always get a boner when the king hits a three. When we picked him first, I said, what a great day. Wait, hold on a second. What did he just say? It sounds like he said something about boners and threes, and that can't be right. Nobody ran that by me. If you slander the king, you better watch your back. For 140 character verbal attack. Decades of evidence. He's at the top when he shatters the record. I just my I'm pulling out video. I'm bringing up fact. Wait. Who wrote that line before last? I thought we were here to protect Bron's legacy. But I'm beginning to wonder about this guy in the harmonies. Got my crew on the mic. LeBron loving the air. Gotta pop our tops off. Gather over there. Gonna have a little tickle or wrestle too. LeBron James gangbang. Is it coming soon? Alright, what the fuck, guys? This is not. Let's shave the number six in a pew. Guys, this was a song about basketball. And Do now... you like being nailed by the king? Alright, I'm done. I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. You like getting oh. nailed by the king? Oh, yes, I love it. Fuck me, your majesty. Fuck me, your majesty. What is this guy doing? We're never going to get anyone 
to sponsor this podcast. Never. It's not happening. Oh, two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. And Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Frog. A podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is. My favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Well, shit, guys. On the wrong end of that one, the Cavs fall to the heat. Bob Schmidt, the host of the Fear the Fro podcast. Let's talk about this loss, okay? The standings, they've gotten a little bit tighter. The Cavs are in fifth. The Heat are in sixth. And in a game that felt winnable, the late game execution doomed us. And now the Heat are just a game and a half back on the Cavs. If the season ended, the Cavs would be facing the Nets. The Heat would be facing the 76ers. A big game ahead of us as the Memphis Grizzlies and the Cavaliers will square off. And then after that, a few cream puffs, so to speak. The Pacers, the Wizards, and hopefully an automatic victory against the Pistons. Fingers crossed. A loss there would be very upsetting. But they end this pre-All-Star break schedule against the 76ers, but a lot of very winnable games between now and then. The Grizzlies, a very difficult matchup coming up Thursday, but a home game, so hopefully better results. And at a time where Evan Mobley seems to be stringing together some very good basketball, so a lot to look forward to, despite tonight's result. Now, what went wrong tonight? Well, It's a few things. These are very obvious things. You could tell this just from looking at the box score. But we shot terrible. And our guards specifically shot terribly. Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, 1 for 12 from outside the arc in the first half, 5 for 20 in the second half. Overall, the Cavs shot 11 for 40 from three-point land. To go along with those woes from the three-point line, they didn't get to the line very often. Just two free throws. For the tandem of Mitchell and Garland. None for Garland. And a one for two performance from Donovan Mitchell. He was not the only one who struggled at the line. As the Cavs made just 50% of their free throws. 6 of 12. Meanwhile, on the other side of the court. The Miami Heat went to the line 25 times. 15 for Jimmy Butler alone. Another guy with double digit free throws. Shea Gilgis Alexander did it. The Clippers did not in this past performance. But in the fourth quarter when they beat us. 22 fourth quarter free throws. It is problematic to have these high-volume free-throw guys get to the line as frequently as Jimmy did tonight. And meanwhile, our guards barely see the stripe. It makes it difficult. Now, to the Cavs' credit, they were only down three at halftime in large part because there were only two first-half turnovers. They came out of the gates good. They led 16-5, to but then Dean Wade checked in. Jimmy went to work on Dean. I thought he drew a very difficult matchup tonight, and Oladipo and Jimmy gave him some difficult possessions, and they cut that lead to 16-15. to But on a buzzer-beating three-pointer, one of two that we saw tonight from Cavalier players, Karis LeVert took the lead for the Cavs, ending the first quarter, and then Donovan Mitchell tied the game up at the end of the third, 79 all, in a stretch which saw the Cavs hit three big three-pointers. Karis LeVert rattled in a left corner three, Ricky Rubio hit a right corner three, and then Donovan Mitchell nailed the buzzer beater at the end of the third quarter. Where did things go wrong? Well, in the second quarter, Bam Adebayo scored 12 of his points. He scored zero in the first quarter, so things started to change, and all of those really came on dunks. He put his shoulder through Jared Allen, flushed it on him. He he caught Donovan sleeping on a switch, dunked it on him. 
He managed to pump fake Mobley, dunked it on him. Bam was good at the moments he needed to be good. In the third quarter, the Cavs came out of the gate. They ripped off nine straight points to take the lead, and a lot of that was being funneled through the bigs. But then the Heat answered with an 8-0 run of their own. And throughout the middle of the third quarter, they started to pull away until the Cavaliers hit that hot stretch of shooting at the end of the quarter to tie it up. The fourth quarter, where things went wrong, the execution. It was There was a lot more hustle plays going the Heat's way. Jimmy got very deliberate in attacking Evan Mobley and trying to get to the rim. And while he had very little success, Evan Mobley led the way for the Cavs in terms of plus-minus tonight, a plus-16. But Bam was there to clean up a lot of those misses, and they were very opportunistic when they needed to be. All this to go along with what was the best game from Caleb Martin of the month. Now, in the five games previous to tonight, Caleb Martin was on a bit of a slump. Two for 15 from three-point land. That's just 13%. Sub-40% shooter. But tonight, he looked like Turkish LeBron or Turkish Jordan, however you want to label it. Jetty Osmond from Sunday when he took on the LA Clippers and was a perfect 7-for-7 from three-point land. It was much of the same from Caleb Martin. Did not miss a shot till midway through the third quarter. Finished with 18 points, 10 rebounds, 7 for 8 from the floor, and 4 for 5 from 3. What happened was the Cavs didn't turn it over in the first half. They did turn it over late in the game on some bad possessions. Jared Allen got tagged with a moving screen. You had another possession where Darius Garland just tried to heave it into Evan Mobley, and it stood no chance of getting in there. Dean Wade over-dribbled, jumped into the air with nowhere to pass, and ended up turning it over. And, of course, there was a foul on a three-point attempt that went in from Tyler Hero by a man all too familiar with fouls on three-point shots in fourth-quarter situations, Karis LeVert. Now, to Karis LeVert's credit, he had a magnificent block in the fourth quarter where the ball got stolen, he chased down Oladipo, and sent him packing. It was beautiful, but... In general, I didn't like the shots that the Cavs were getting in the fourth quarter, whereas the Heat were very deliberate and seemed to know exactly what they wanted to do. There was a fourth quarter possession that ended in a contested corner three from Evan Mobley, and that was at a point where the lead was starting to slip away. We were down five. It was 98-93 with a minute left. And then the final shot of the game for Mitchell was just way too rushed. He had six seconds, basically, to get it up the court. And the look he got was drifting, fading away. I'm surprised he even drew iron. So just a disappointing way to conclude the game. The Heat executed when they needed to. So I don't know what more you can say aside from the fact that if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be a veteran-tested team like the Heat. Butler is a difficult challenge. He's a guy who draws whistles. He's big enough to be physical with people. He, he doesn't have Mobley's size, but he certainly tested Mobley. He wasn't afraid, and he made Dean work for everything. And Dean, he had some tough possessions there. Uh, Jared Allen, the worst on the team for the Cavs in terms of plus-minus. I didn't feel that way on the eyeball test, but coming out of the game tonight, according to the box score, the two worst players were Levert and Jared Allen. Now, I didn't, again, I mean, Levert, 14 points off the bench, and while he only hit two of his six three-pointers, they were at big points in the game. That late in the third quarter, rattled in three, and then the buzzer beater in the first quarter. Osman, on the heels of what was a very good game, it's more roller coaster jetty, as he was 0 for 2, missed both three-point looks, played just seven minutes. So, he made the nine-man rotation. I guess you can say that. Stevens, is no longer playing. Neto didn't see the floor. 
But I think plenty of us were saying that you can't play 10 or 11 guys. So it seems like JB has realized that and has modified. In general, I'm supportive of this idea. Now, I got asked on Twitter, at FearTheFroPod, and I figured it's just faster for me to address it this way. A couple of questions that got posed to me. One on my email, Bob at FroPod.com, and one on Twitter. And I'll just respond to them here. Uh, Joe underscore Joe 133 on Twitter. I'm not saying he has to go and be fired now, but what's your opinion on JB? I know there's a lot of different factors that go into these losses, but is he the guy to lead this team to where they want to go long-term? Joe, what I would say is this. Am I confident JB is the guy to lead this team long-term? No, but a lot of that is because we just haven't seen him in situations where it is really do or die. Do I hold him accountable for games where the Cavs shoot five for 22 in the first half or 11 for 40. No, I hold him accountable for things which he can control. He can control who he plays. Now, if he chooses people and they fail to perform, I I look at that as something that's on the players. If he continues to go back to the same people who fail to perform over and over again, over better options, that's when I would hold it against him. In situations where we're racked with injuries, where Rubio was out, where Wade was out, where we were banged up, and he was giving Levert big minutes, and you know he was giving Stevens big minutes, and Stevens wasn't overwhelming you with incredible statistical lines, was I upset at JB there? No, because we still won a lot of games with Lamar Stevens in the starting lineup, and I understood the strategy of him playing him against these big wings like Durant and Giannis and Luka. And so I wouldn't make those decisions that I wouldn't look at something like point differential and say, okay, well, this was just horrible. We can't play him again. Situationally, I think there's a time for data and I think there's a time for data, but through the context of also looking at the eye test and knowing what you're trying to achieve. So I do think that I was at the end of my leash with the Kevin Love ineffective minutes. And eventually the injury is what took him out of the lineup. But now... I like the decision that JB is making in terms of Dean Wade is back and healthy and he's going to him early, despite the fact that he's been out of the lineup for a while. The thing I like about Dean Wade is the same thing that I like about Evan Mobley. I feel like the floor is very high for both of those guys because they play within themselves. They can complement guys in a variety of ways. With Dean, it's his defense. He can slide in and log minutes when one of the bigs goes to the bench. And he has enough floor spacing ability that when his shot is on, he can make an impactful difference. As it relates to JB, though, I wouldn't say that I'm confident that he is the guy to lead the team to a title necessarily, but I definitely don't think he's shown enough negative that you would pull the plug on giving him that opportunity. I mean, we're a half season into Mitchell being here. A guy who's a massive top 10 in usage type player who you dropped into a lineup. He's he's coaching a second year player who you can see just in the course of this month is just now starting to figure out ways to assert himself more offensively. And through all of that, these players are learning one another. So I think it's tough sometimes for people to have patience, but really I want to see what happens when the playoffs roll around one, because we'll have more time between now and then to figure out exactly what our identity is on a team with a brand new superstar component to it. Just only a half season in and two, because that's the time 
where the the defenses and the the in-game adjustments are going to be the most critical. Those are the times where I'm going to hold it against him when he makes big mistakes or when there's things I don't like. In the moment, it's really just a matter of a lot of people second-guessing rotations and assuming that if Chetty had played, then he was going to give you Clippers Chetty every game. We just don't know that. Would I like to see Osmond more? Sure. But I think we've known for the better part of two seasons that whatever the reason is, JB and Osman aren't always on the same page. And if you and if that is some people's reason for disliking JB, they're so loyal to Osman that the, they're willing to overlook the fact that we have the best defense in the league or that our offense is taking steps forward. I mean, so be it. I guess that's for some people to decide. But but no, I'm not at that point yet. Now let's hit All-Star Reserves, because I got an email asking about who I think should make the All-Star Reserves. We've talked a lot about it, but I haven't actually given you a list of sorts. So now that we know the starters, we've got seven spots to play with. Two front court reserves, three back court reserves, and two wild cards. Let's just get out of the way, the guys who will absolutely make it. In the front court, Joel Embiid is a sure thing. I think Bam Adebayo is a sure thing. And Julius Randle. I, I wouldn't say he's a sure thing, but he's as close to one as there's going to be in that next tier. So those three would be three of the forwards. Then you have three guards, Jalen Brown, Tyrese Halliburton, James Harden. Now the last guy could be one of a number of people. Jimmy Butler, Pascal Siakam, DeMar DeRozan, Jalen Brunson, Darius Garland. I'm going Pascal. I think he makes it before Jimmy. I think Trey's definitely out. I think Brunson and Garland, they won't make it. They're just not good enough. And you have Halliburton, Harden, and Brown already on the roster as guards. So I think four bigs are going to get taken here. And Bede, Adebayo, Randall, Siakam, and the three guards are going to be Brown, Halliburton, and Harden. Now, finally, trade proposal that I saw floating out there today regarding Karis LeVert and some second-round picks for Gary Trent Jr., Here's what I would say, and this isn't specific to Gary Trent Jr. It just relates to all these guys who are walk-year free agents, Josh Hart, Gary Trent Jr. The Cavs do not have a lot of draft assets yet. I'm very hesitant to believe that they're going to risk giving up Levert and assets to bring back a guy who could walk away with some this summer and leave them without the salary slot and without the assets that they gave up to get them. This is a team that, by all accounts, even with Donovan Mitchell, a talent of his level, spent a significant amount of time vetting his personality and his fit with the culture. So to think that they're just going to say, well, uh, Gary Trent Jr. is a better three-point shooter. You know, Josh Hart's a more efficient scorer. That's enough. We'll upgrade in that one area and we'll pay a first round or sorry, not a first round, a second round pick or a couple second round picks to do it. I'm hesitant to believe that. I think they're going to be very deliberate because this is a multi-year window they feel like they've created. They're going to use these assets in the way that they think makes the biggest talent leap. It's you could argue it's two in one hand, three in the other as far as who's a better player. Gary Trent Jr. or Karis LeVert. I get the appeal of a Gary Trent Jr. He's a little bit younger, but is it a sure enough thing that I think they'll risk losing that salary spot and whatever secondary assets they give up in the form of second-round picks? I think it's unlikely because they still have the buyout market available to them. They'll still have the exceptions this summer. And if they're a good enough team, if they make a good enough showing with these four stars that they have as their core, there may be people who fill that wing position, who see the void that exists 
on the Cleveland Cavaliers who decide to ring chase and jump on board just because of the opportunity for a large role and a lot of playing time. So I expect the Cavs to be very deliberate in choosing if and when they will do any trades. And if they pull the trigger on a trade for a guy who is a walk-year free agent or a player option type free agent like a Josh Hart or a Gary Trent Jr., I expect they would only do so because they've done a ton of due diligence and they're confident that that player would provide a big upgrade at the spot in their view. And I just don't know if I share that view that there isn't enough risk with Gary Trent Jr. and a Josh Hart to do those deals. I think Josh Hart is an upgrade on Levert in a handful of ways. He's more efficient. He's a very solid defender. But I don't think that he has the handle that Levert does, and and I don't think that he's necessarily the creator that Levert can be. With Gary Trent Jr., I think he can be a decent defender and a good three-point shooter. But honestly, Karis LeVert is having some of the best shooting that we've seen from outside, and he does a lot of other things. And he's a known commodity. Plus, I think he comes cheaper than both of those guys. I think he definitely comes cheaper than a younger Gary Trent Jr. And I think if you retain Karis LeVert and you end up with him locked in on a, let's say he signs a two-year $30 million deal or a three-year $42 million deal with a team option on the last year. That could become a movable contract for a guy who we already know what his role in this system is, a guy who's played decently well when he's had to fill in as a spot starter and who is seeming to find a rhythm, at least in this calendar year, as a guy off the bench. So I'm not trying to dump cold water on any of these trade rumors, but I think people are overestimating kind of the outlook of the front office to think that they absolutely have to do something now because I don't think they view it as the difference between winning a couple of games in the first round and maybe squeaking our way into the second round is enough to leverage a bunch of assets for or to put their their chances of being able to keep a Levert-level salary on the books at risk. I don't think they'll do it. So anyway, that's enough. This is Long podcast for a loss, but I'm Bob Schmidt. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you to everybody who listened, and please, if you enjoyed the show, rate it, review it, um, you know, five-star it, whatever it may be on your podcasting platform, and I'll be back with another episode. Hopefully, it'll be after a win against the Memphis Grizzlies, but we'll know who the all-star reserves are at that point, and the trade deadline will be ever closer. So thank you once again. This is Fear the Fro. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.